Welcome back to Serious Epidemiology. I am Matt Fox from Boston University. I'm joined once again by my friend and co-host, Dr. Haley Vanek from the University of Toronto. Haley, how you doing? I'm good, thanks, Matt. How are you doing? I'm good, but I realized I don't do a very good job of editing these scripts because my script says, hi, Matt, how you doing? Yeah, mine mine says the same thing because we're reading from the same document. But, you know, it's it's nice to know that um, we are interested in how each other are doing. Yeah, clearly. And we, as we know, this is not going to be released for a while, but we are in the process of getting ready for SER. I hear you're having a great time getting ready. Yeah, I'm overwhelmingly busy preparing for symposia and workshops and lunchtime talks. It's, it's always such a fun week, such a great experience. I love seeing everyone and networking and all that kind of stuff. But the week before is mayhem. How about you? Yep, same. Trying to get everything done in time is always a bit of a nightmare, but we will get through it. Yep. Well, as you know, we are dedicating the entire second and now third season of the podcast to the new edition of Modern Epidemiology. Today, we are continuing on in our conversation about causal inference with time-varying exposures, chapter 25, for those of you who are following along at home. And to do so, we have a fantastic guest, Dr. Sonia Hernandez-Diaz from Harvard University. Sonia is a professor of epidemiology at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Her area of interest is drug safety evaluation from non-randomized data with special emphasis on the design, conduct, and analysis of studies in pregnant women and their infants. She is a past president of the International Society for Pharmacoepidemiology and the Society for Perinatal and Pediatric Epidemiologic Research and serves as a special government employee for the FDA Drug Safety and Risk Management Advisory Committee and is a member of of the NICHD Pregnancy and Neonatology Study Section, and as a member of the Teratogenic Information Services Advisory Board. You have a lot going on. Welcome to the <laughs> podcast, Sonia. Thank you so much. So nice being with you. I was hoping that by having a long curriculum, the questions were going to be shorter and I will get fewer. <laughs> so. Exactly. We will, we will completely run out of time because exactly. we'll spend the whole time reading your CV, which would take us the full hour. No, we are going to actually ask you questions about time time varying everything. But before we do on this podcast, we like to get to know our guests a little bit with some fun questions to begin with. So to get us started off, I'm curious to know if there are any papers, epi or stats, or I suppose otherwise, that you read or reread every year or every so often because you feel they are just really important papers to know and understand. Right. And it is difficult to pick one, right? But the reality is that I find myself most often using as a reference or forwarding to people the paper by Sander Greenland and Ken Rodman and others on the statistical tests, p-values, confidence intervals, and power published in the European Journal of Epi 2016, particularly when responding to journal reviewers or when reviewing myself's protocols or papers. You know, if I, okay, they, they said it so nicely that why am I going to try to explain it again? So, and I know this is a battle that Ken Rodman and others have been fighting for, for years. And as you know, we still find ourselves having to explain why a significant association might not be meaningful and the other way around. So probably like any paper by Ken Rodman on significant testing will do and we can use as ammunition to respond and maybe sometimes proactively explain why we are not putting the p-value on the tables and so forth. 
I completely agree. I go back to that one all the time. And in particular, as you say, I find it really helpful when responding to reviewers and, and editors because it, I can say whatever I want about p-values, but typically these statistical editors have no idea who I am, but they all know who Ken and Sander are and it carries a lot more weight. So I go back to that one a lot. Right. Okay, second question. If you could be on a reality TV show, which one would you choose and why? Okay, this is the easiest question. I'm not neurotic <laughs> at all about this. Dancing with the Stars. And to be honest, I have never watched a full show, but it sounds like a perfect sabbatical project to me. <laughs> you know? Oh! That's the best answer we've ever gotten. <laughs> should, should we have a Dancing with the Epidemiologic Stars? Totally. Next year at SCR, I think so. We had this running with the president, right, of SCR. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, yeah, for next president, it should be dancing with the president. And I would like to see that. Okay, <laughs> I will volunteer to be the first one eliminated really? because uh, okay. there's no <laughs> chance that I would make it past the first round. That's for sure. But that's a good one. Okay, I'm, that I'm, is a good I'm one. glad to hear it. Now, are you saying you don't watch it, but you, you still endorse it? Well, I knew about it. I have watched, you know, little pieces here and there. I never like sat and watched the whole thing or follow it. But I think it would be... Seems fun. Yeah, for sure my favorite one. I asked because my kids were obsessed with that show when they were, I don't know, 12, 10-ish. And so we watched every week and oh. we knew the names of the dancers and we had contestants we were rooting for. So yeah, we spent a lot of time with that one. Mm -hmm. Okay, and last question. Where is one place you've always wanted to travel to or a place that you have traveled to that you have loved the most? Yeah, I love traveling, but what has been on my list of places I want to go since pre-COVID has been the Gorica Islands. I don't know why, but it's a place I have not, I have never been there. And it's a place I would love to go. And for places that I have traveled, there are many places that I have traveled to and I will not mind at all going back to. It will be hard to pick one, but like from going to the Grand Canyon and hiking there to scuba diving in Bonaire or from visiting Paris and walking around or to going to the Okavango Delta in Botswana. So I, I love traveling. So I will go back to many of the places I have been. So you mentioned the Okavango Delta. That was, I think, possibly the first time you and I met which is when you came through South Africa and we met very briefly as you were traveling up to uh, Botswana. Right, I remember. And we were there. Well, I was there. You were working there, but I yeah. I was there because uh, I was invited to Eric Chechen Chechen wedding, yep. which was an amazing event. And then I used the opportunity to visit um, the Delta. It's, of course, it's a, a unique place. I highly recommend it. One of the most amazing places in the world. Okay, well, thank you for that. And now we feel like we know you a bit better. Now we are going to turn to the real reason that we have asked you here to be our expert on all things time-varying, time-varying exposures in particular. And as I said, we're, we're talking about chapter 25, which is causal inference with time-varying exposures. And the chapters focus on methods for causal inference with longitudinal data, particularly in cases when exposures vary over time. And the chapter gets into this, but could you explain to us why you would say that it's so important to think about these, maybe you would call them specialized methods, or maybe you just call them more sophisticated than the methods that we typically use when we think about time invariant exposures or point exposures, I guess you would say. But why it's so important to use these methods? What are the problems when we don't use them? Yeah, I think there are two aspects that make this time variant exposure situation challenging for observational studies in particular, but also for randomized trial. And one of them is confounding. But number two, that is 
probably maybe more important is that it gets more complicated to define what is your sponsor, what is your treatment strategy, and to specify your question and contrast of interest. So, and number one, the confounding requires these specialized analytic methods. Number two uh, requires thinking well and having the proper study design, I think. So let me start with number one, the, the confounding situation. And this is the situation where we have this treatment confounding feedback. And we have two principles in epidemiology. And one, adjust for factors that affect your exposure and your outcome. And two, do not adjust for factors potentially on the causal pathway, right? That is affected by the exposure and, and affect the outcome. Well, in time-varying exposures, the, the same factors can be both affected by the exposure in time one, and then confounders for the exposure in time two. And so if we do not adjust, but we have residual confounding for time two exposures. If we do adjust, also bad, because now we adjust for something in the causal pathway. So the good news from this chapter are that while we cannot get away from the situation with the traditional methods like regressions, the methods summarized in, in chapter 25 and the reference provided by the chapter can give the solution. And, uh, and those are weighting or standardizing and that can actually allow us to do both control for time varying confounders without blocking the paths or introducing collider bias if that confounder that is varying over time is also affected by other factors that affect our, our outcome. So in your work, Matt, with, with HIV, I think it was a pioneer example of how we have HIV infection and we have the treatments and we measure things like the CD4 counts when evaluating the, the treatments and the CD4 counts also affect which treatments are we going to give, how are we going to escalate the intensity of the treatment. So only with these methods that allow us studies for CD4 counts, a variable affected by the treatment and that affects future treatment decisions. Only with these methods can we adjust for confounding without introducing more uh, problems. And then the number two aspect that I mentioned, that it may be actually the first thing we have to figure out, is what is your question? When we have point exposures, it's easier. When we have this sustained treatment strategies, then the evaluation of that and defining what we want is just harder because we can usually not treat every block of exposure as an independent unit of point exposure sequentially, if you wish. So just defining the exposure and, and the question also gets more complicated in this situation. In the, the scheme of the list you mentioned, the, the confounding and um, the issues related to the causal contrast and, and that kind of thing, something I also wanted to ask about is missing data and losses to follow up in particular. That's, you know, it's kind of venturing away from the main topic of the chapter, but it, it's certainly related to longitudinal data. And where do you think that type of concern falls in the list of one and two with potentially three as, as censoring or losses to follow up as a, as a concern in the methods we need to think about when we're using longitudinal data. Right. So you mentioned missing data and then losses to follow up. And so we can have, of course, losses to follow up even with point exposures at the beginning. But when we have these longitudinal follow-ups, of course, those losses to follow up, if they are what we can call like informative, can introduce selection bias in the sense of the, the population that we have at the beginning is selected over time. So I think it's part of these methods to also account for these losses to follow up, even when maybe we don't have a time-varying exposure. So that will apply to both a point exposure at the beginning and time-varying 
exposures. And regarding the, the missing data, when we have these situations of time-varying exposures and time-varying compounding, now the granularity of the data and the complexity of the data we need multiplies because we need to have the information in order to adjust for these time-varying confounders. So the missingness now also in potentially very important pieces of information that we cannot forget to collect and, and them to use properly. And I think this is related to one of the questions later, I think, but it is as important or more important when we have these situations to make sure we have the data to apply the methods, that, uh, the, the, the fancy methods. The fancy methods, methods are not going to compensate for us not having the information on the confounders. Agreed. And really not having information in general, because when I first learned about these time varying methods, my first thought was, doesn't almost everything that we study in epidemiology actually time varying? I mean, sure, there is the odd thing where the bomb goes off and everybody's exposed to radiation at a particular time point. But in general, you know, even things like smoking, which we, you know, will roll people into a cohort and categorize them as heavy smoker, light smoker, never smoker or something like that, or we'll divide them into pack years. But the reality is that all accumulated over a period of time that we just didn't measure. So in your experience, are things much more likely to be time varying than time fixed? That, I think that's an excellent point. And, and I think uh, many of my answers will be, what is your question? So mm -hmm. it depends on your question. But I agree that even when we try to think about one point exposure, at the end, everything can be time varying. And in, in pharmacopoeia, the, the classic point exposure will be, okay, you have a vaccine and you look at what happened the following hours, like anaphylaxis or like a rash. But even that, even vaccination, in the population is time buying. So I think being time buying or not uh, sometimes de depends on, on our question and that we can go from something that looks point exposures to actually realize that they change over time and, and therefore we have to consider follow-up and time varying situations. And sometimes we, I think, convert time varying things into more concrete and in time narrower questions, sometimes because that's the way we can respond to that question. And like, for example, with, with smoking, we could um, imagine a point situation where we compare among smokers those that discontinue and those that continue for a short period of time and looking at a point exposure even when as you were saying smoking is like a long term thing changing you know, over lifetime so yeah I think my answer would be just it depends on the question mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah though I, I think more often than not the questions we're really interested in are the, are the time varying ones and maybe we don't always answer those because we either don't have the data to be able to untangle the question we might want to answer or we're just not up on the methods to be able to do so so I think it's it's certain that almost every exposure and outcome we're interested in is time varying as as we've mentioned. A question that I often think about is is whether that time varying aspect of it really matters. So I, I had this example a little while ago where I was um, people talk about BMI body mass index as as a, a variable that varies over the course of your lifetime. And I study older adults, so does it vary in older adulthood? And we created these you know fancy trajectories and and did all this stuff. And in essence, the trajectories were flat. There were five different trajectory groups, but they were flat. And we did all these analyses using the trajectories as our exposure, looking at some, I think it was cardiometabolic outcome or something like that. And we submitted it for the journal review. And one of the reviewers said, these trajectories are flat. Why don't you just use a categorical BMI exposure instead of using the trajectories? Well, we'd done all this fancy modeling. And of course, you know, that I, we wanted to show that the trajectories are actually flat. But I think there's some consideration of the specific context 
context you're in, not just what question you want to answer and what data you have, but does it really matter? And not using fancy methods for fancy methods sake. You know, sometimes there are situations where you can answer the question you're interested in if you correctly specify it using something simple rather than just using something fancy. So I think that's also a consideration that people need to, to think through as well. Yeah. And I think your example with Gwade or BMI makes me realize that coming from pharmacoepi, we think about treatments. And for us, it's easier to imagine exposures as always like treatment strategies versus when you are in other areas of epidemiology, it might be harder to translate those exposures into interventions or strategies. For me, in pharmacoepi, where I think we can get into trouble by not paying attention to the beginning of exposure and the beginning of follow-up, and which is commonly done when we look at BMI or smoking effects, is that we can have some selections over time. Like I'm thinking about the example of if you were to study the effect of aspirin on gastrointestinal bleeding, and, and you would not pay attention to the initiation versus who is on aspirin. Like in the example of BMI, it's like, how do we get to that BMI versus of course. having that BMI? We could get into some trouble, right? Like those that have been using aspirin for a long time and are still using it probably don't have gastrointestinal symptoms associated with it. So what do we mean with the effect of using aspirin versus not? So that's why I think in pharmacopoeia, we try to think about exposures as strategies or interventions or, or like treatments. And I think that sometimes I, I think it's, it's easier not to get in, in some potential problems. But but for to sure. your point of not using fancy methods for the sake of using fancy methods, I, I totally agree. Yeah, no, I think the point about pharmacopoeia is, is always where I start off my teaching. I think it's the easiest place to conceptualize some of these ideas in terms of assigning treatments, you know, assign uh, prevalent users versus incident users. These concepts are all really clearly delineated in pharmacopoeia in a way that that it's not so much in, in other fields like BMI. And it's, I think, as a teaching tool, the best place to, to start with that. So this is veering a little bit from the topic. Totally. It's, it's, it's related, <laughs> but I, while we, I mean, I just want to ask since it came up, you mentioned the idea that in pharmacopoeia, it's much easier to conceptualize what the intervention is, whereas with something like BMI, it's not. But it seems to me that one of the problems then becomes is, okay, we can learn the effects of things that we may or may not be able to intervene on or that we can't really conceptualize what the intervention is, but we don't necessarily get any practical, useful information out of it. And so I always wonder if we can't conceptualize what the intervention is or the, the strategy is to intervene, what practical information are we learning? And, and if there isn't, what's the point of the exercise? I don't know if that's to me or Sonia, but just to, to both of you. <laughs> to, to make a point about, I think you said useful or practical information. I think there is useful information to be gained from doing studies like that. It depends what your purpose is in trying to interpret that data and whether you want to create some kind of actionable intervention based on that, you know, something like a BMI study, as we're talking about. The purpose of understanding these relationships is valid and I think useful. Is that going to lead to an intervention study on BMI? Surely not, because you have to look at the exercise or the diet or, or whatever mechanism, Ozempic, you're using to change someone's BMI. So I think the way you ask the question is a little bit loaded in that I think there's different uses for different types of, of research out there. But I'll, I'll let Sonia answer the, the rest of the question. Yeah, I totally agree that the descriptive epidemiology is useful and looking at associations can be informative. But I also agree with Matt that then we have to be careful with the interpretation. So that say if we are 
looking at the association between BMI today and an outcome, or if we are looking at an association as like currently going to services and depression, like in the chapter, like fine, like we can say, no, we want to look at that. But then we have to be careful with the interpretation of that, of saying, for example, then go to service and you are not going to have depression or do not stop going to service because then uh, you are going to have depression. So if we didn't look at a particular treatment or intervention in our data, then we cannot conclude that that's what we recommend. So if we find that certain BMI patterns are associated with something, great, might be informative, but then we cannot recommend, therefore, lower your BMI because that's not what we evaluated directly. In general, of course, we, you can have external information, you can have other knowledge that put, putting all together, it makes complete sense and it might actually be correct. That's not what we evaluated. So I think it's okay to say, no, we are just looking at that and this is informative, but then we cannot conclude an evidence-based supported conclusion that recommends an intervention that we didn't evaluate without additional information. That yeah, and, and Haley, to be clear, I, I did mean to imply that there was no value in that, but it isn't clear to me what the value is in terms of what we do about it as a public health problem. So for in the HIV world, you put people onto HIV treatment and their CD4 count doesn't go up. We know that's really bad in terms of your outcomes. So what do we do about that? So if I get my CD4 count up, I will be less likely to experience severe outcomes. Yes, but how would I do that given that the way we typically do that is with HIV treatment and it didn't work? So it's never clear to me what information we learn about what people can actually do to improve their health. Yeah, I know I agree with that. And as a new early-ish career researcher and you know dipping my toes fully into to grant writing, as part of the challenge, I think, with asking people to, to give you money to do the studies you want to do is you need this evidence base, you know, describing all the, the associations, all the descriptions that have been done on the topic. So they'll give you $3 million to do the, the research that you really want to do on, on interventions or whatnot or causal sure. inference and then that kind of stuff. And, and so I, I see it as part of a whole evidence base on a topic. While I agree, the BMI studies I'm describing or that what you were describing about your CD4 count not changing, those are not going to directly lead to an intervention or a treatment in and of itself, but it still sort of helps the evidence base move forward sure. uh, to provide a whole picture of what's going on. I would certainly agree with that. Okay, so to get us sort of back a little bit, so we, we're talking about this idea of time-varying exposures. And as we said, often people, what people do is they will just change their time-varying exposure into something that is time-fixed. So I use the example of smoking. And we enroll people into a study and we just look at how much they have smoked up to that time point. Do the problems go away at that point with the time-varying confounding problems if we just look at people from the time at which they have completed whatever the exposure level it is we're interested in? I think the question changes, right? It depends on the on the question. And I think that one of the dangers of looking at point exposures that in smoking or in pharmacotherapy, like the aspirin example that, that we can give, we look at current exposure right now. And, and I think by doing that, we may get to the wrong interpretation sometimes. And as Ellie was saying, sometimes it doesn't matter, but sometimes we may get to the wrong interpretation because considering these time-varying exposures as fixed, we start looking at exposures and outcomes as fixed blocks over time for a person as if they had the same risk within that period of time, within level of exposures and, and covariates. And then we get disconnected from the cohort design and the implications of all the forces of selection that can apply. We can forget what happened with the losses to follow up, what happened with the competing events. So like the basic principles that we will always have in mind with the randomized trial, then we just forget about them. For example, using the aspirin 
in and gastrointestinal ulcer or gastrointestinal bleeding as an example. We know that if you start aspirin, you can have some gastrointestinal problems and that will affect whether you continue using aspirin that can affect gastrointestinal problems and so forth. So if we define exposure as point as current aspirin at a given time, we are assuming that the risk of upper gastrointestinal bleeding in aspirin initiators is the same as in those that have been using aspirin without gastrointestinal symptoms for years. And because we know there can be a selection over time of who keeps using aspirin and there can be acute effects and long-term effects of aspirin, if we miss that, we can sometimes get to a consequence of making the incorrect interpretation if we find that, for example, in our population that might have an over-representation of prevalent aspirin users, those that are using aspirin do not have gastrointestinal events. So by forgetting the longitudinal aspect of exposure and, and the changes over time, both in sometimes time variant, but also in the selection over time of who keeps being exposed or not, we can get to the consequence of having incorrect interpretations. And do you think this is a, a teaching issue? When you learn, you know, your intro to epi courses, at least in mine, we didn't ever talk about time fixed versus time varying exposures. We just talked about exposed and unexposed. And I absolutely get that there are reasons why you don't want to start with the most complexity that there is in a situation, because it's very hard to get the basic concepts down when you're first learning. But at the same time, I wonder if we do a disservice by teaching in a way that really does give the impression that you can just treat everything as a time-fixed exposure, even if it's time-varying. Yeah, I understand your point. Like when teaching, you have to simplify to teach one concept, and then you move to the next concept and simplify the other because you have to put the blocks together. I think that if we were to start teaching causal inference methods, not descriptive studies, uh, prediction models, different topics also important, but for causal inference, we can start with point exposures, but imagining that we are have an intervention, starting with a randomized trial, and then increasingly complicating the situation from there, and understanding what are the trade-offs and the assumptions that we are making. It is not only that the time bind, which is, I think, the top of the, <laughs> the complications, but the longitudinal follow-up, even if we had point exposures initially, and what happened with the, with the selection, I think that one of the risks <laughs> is actually moving away from risks and going into rates. Yeah. Because when we discovered the personal time, it was, I think, a very liberating experience. Like, oh, great, now we can have different follow-ups and we can have changes in exposure and exposures that vary over time. But both having these differential follow-ups and time varying exposures takes us away from our survivor curves. So if we cannot start with that, when we jump into the Cox proportional hazards, I think it's so easy to forget what we are paying to do that. The assumptions that we are putting over the table on, and jumping into a hazard models, in, including as uh, chapter 25 um, deals with the time varying confounding. But I think there, there are other things that we can also get wrong by not starting from the, the basics and growing from there, including think, imagining an intervention like a, a randomized trial and then evolving our causal inference from there. I think that, that, that structure, I think, hopefully will, will work in this generation, right? We, we are experimenting, I think, now trying that and trying not to get into the problems that we sometimes have put ourselves into in the past, like the hormone replacement example and, and so forth. Yeah, thank you for bringing up the hormone replacement therapy example. Okay. For listeners who are not familiar with, with those examples, um, there's a whole series of papers 
explaining the different answers you get looking at observational data and uh, clinical trials data related to the use of hormone replacement therapy. And I think those are some of the most illustrative examples of why you need to consider time-varying exposures and what the question you're asking. So for anyone who's interested in this topic, I, I really highly recommend those papers and we'll link them with the episode. Uh, but to come back to Matt's question briefly about time-varying exposures versus teaching time-fixed exposures initially, this is actually where I think DAGs have made one of the most important contributions, especially for those who are just starting out in epidemiology teaching it as a, a time fixed exposure and what is an exposure and what are we looking for? You know, these really basic concepts, you can present those really basic concepts using a DAG or, you know, whether you call it a formal DAG or a formal causal diagram, illustrating something on a, a PowerPoint slide of this is what we're looking at. And then it's relatively simple to add in a second node for an exposure. You know, look, this exposure at visit one is different than the exposure at visit two. And both of those things affect your outcome. That's sort of a, a nice, simple representation of planting the seed for exposures that change over time without getting really complex or without just explaining this as a concept, you know, smoking changes over time. I think that's that's understandable to everyone or your prescriptions may change over time. These are concepts that I think you can introduce in an introductory format, especially graphically, so you can build on those in, in later epi courses, of course, you know, when you really get into it. But I think you have have to start at that time fixed, what is an exposure point as, as a building block. I don't see any way around it. So I wanted to go back to something you said, which is that when you talked about person time, and then you graph out the survival curve, you start to realize all the assumptions that we're making. And this leads me to a, a thought I had years ago, which is that if every time you published a paper, you had to list all of the assumptions that went into every decision that you made. So every analytic decision, every modeling decision that you made, and then explain if you violate those assumptions, why you think that you could still draw valid conclusions from your data, I wonder whether we would recognize a lot more of the problems and make it easier for reviewers. And that led me to thinking that what we really need is a book that is the book of assumptions that tells you, lists out the assumptions that go with every model, every you know approach. So it would at least give you a place you could go to when you're trying to come up with the assumptions that go into all of these things. I just wonder whether that would help us out. I think that definitely having the assumptions present is a must. Sometimes I worry with this shopping list yeah. that once you have them not all of the things in the list are going to be equally relevant or important or impactful so being also able to from all the assumptions say which ones like okay probably most likely yes versus i can get uh, this assumption i don't know and like sometimes like say the proportional hazard model with with the cox is actually probably very rarely it's true now for some things it might not matter yep. but, but yeah I, I agree and it will be also harder to publish though if we were to <laughs> recognize because sometimes the more we recognize no <laughs> I totally agree with everything you just said there, both the idea that anything like that would be overinterpreted, because as you say, I mean, some violations of assumptions really don't matter all that much, and some matter a lot. But also that, yeah, it would certainly make it harder to convince people that you were getting the causal effects that you think you are. But you know, maybe that's not such a bad thing. Okay, so I want to go back to the idea of this issue that you mentioned in the beginning when you were describing the time varying issues, this idea of the selection bias that can come into our analyses when we don't appropriately deal with 
with, say, time-bearing confounders. Can you explain what that issue is and why it's such a big problem or potentially a big problem? For the reasons that we were discussing, we need to be careful with the time-bearing confounders when we have treatment confounding feedback. When the confounders we need to adjust for confounding for future exposures or, or treatment points are affected by prior treatments. For two reasons. One is because we can be blocking part of the effect, but also because if those confounders share causes with the outcome, we may be conditioning an collider and opening a backdoor path and introducing collider bias. But if the other related complication that we were discussing is this definition of the question and specifying what are the, the treatment strategies. I'm going to the DAG we were proposing as, uh, to teach to start with these DAGs and then incorporating the fact that we can have different times for exposure for confounders. I think it's important to recognize that once we do that, now exposure or treatment is no longer yes, no. Now, every time we add a moment in time, we multiply the potential questions that we are talking about. Are we talking about always treated and never treated or treated until you get this event or level and then stop or treated at least 80% of the time and so forth. So we also have more complicated questions or the number of questions explode with this follow-up. And, and I think that's a, a difficult part of this situation of, of having um, time-bearing exposures. Not only the confounding, but the question itself is not as straightforward. So this is something that's sort of real interest to me. I mean, if you have really good longitudinal data where you've, you've captured things over time at high quality, the number of questions you could potentially ask of that data set, as you say, becomes almost infinite. And it seems to me we would really probably want to know the answers to all of those different questions. And yet it seems to me we most of the time focus on always treat, never treat, or maybe some slight variation on that. But you could make an entire career off of one set of questions around different approaches to treatment that might lead to different effects. Now, obviously, there's all kinds of reasons why you wouldn't want to do that. You might be just exhausting the data set. You might just not have the power to be able to answer really fine questions. But it does strike me that we don't really spend enough time asking the interesting questions that people might actually find useful in their lives. And I'm curious your experience with that. Yeah, no, I agree that we tend to go into, okay, it's complicated. Let's pick the simplest thing of always treated and never treated and consider that this is a static strategy of treatment. And I think in, in real life, rarely that's the question of interest. I totally agree with you, Matt, that we typically care more about dynamic strategies, which we need them methods such as the G formula even yeah. to deal with that. For example, for the treatments for HIV, like if I give one treatment, but it's only until I get to this CD4 count. And if so, then I will do B or C. But if there is an adverse event, then of course I will change treatment. And, and that's going to be the recommendation. So real life is a more complicated, usually than a simple static, static strategy. And to your point of once we have good quality data, we have all the information, the number of questions that we have to ask the data is huge. And in a sense, that's amazing because that's usually much better than a randomized trial that looks at one specific question. So the, the number of things that we can compare is much richer. And But of course, we can only compare things that have happened in real life. Right. And as you know, then when for some questions, when we try to look at them and evaluate them, we run out of numbers. <laughs> so, but other than that, I, I agree like the number of questions and combinations of strategies that we can evaluate in observational data and well-collected observational data is amazing. I think about this all the time with nutritional epidemiology and obviously nutritional epidemiology has very complicated because you know, all these nutritional factors come together. But I always see these headlines that say eating nuts and legumes or whatever are good for you. And I always think to myself, that's not really useful to me. Like what I want to know is I am a 50 year old male mm -hmm. who never smoked, but has eaten a lot of cookies throughout his life. <laughs> 
how much is it going to improve my life to start eating more nuts at this point? And that's a question that isn't really being asked of data because it would be really hard to do that. But that's what I want to know. The number of questions we could ask is infinite. I just had this similar type of exchange with someone about the World Health Organization came out with a statement recently about artificial sweeteners and that they're harmful for health outcomes. I forget whatever the health outcomes were. And without any type of consideration of, well, who starts using artificial sweeteners? What is it replacing? Is it replacing sugar in your, your Coke or that kind of stuff? Is it Diet Coke? And um, how often, you know, there's, there's so many nutrition related questions that require a level of data that I just don't really realistically think we have. And I don't even know how you would collect it. Like when you think through the target trial framework of, of what it would really look like, I don't even know how you would begin to conceptualize that. Um, I have a lot of respect for those nutritional epi folks because it's very, very complicated. So I'll just I'll just stick to my, yeah. my simpler and, stuff. And we are, of course, going off track here, but related, I agree. And to Matt's point, like one of the things that you are referring to is personalizing the question mm -hmm. to the specific situation. So it's not nuts for everybody or doing triathlons at age 60. That doesn't mm -hmm. work the same for everybody, right? So... <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and same thing in pharmacopoeia with treatments. You cannot start with, is giving insulin good for you? Well, you're not going to give it to you unless you have a reason to. So same thing with nutrition, I, like much more complicated than pharmacopoeia, I think. But personalizing the question, and there I think we are talking about inclusion and exclusion criteria. Mm -hmm. So they are also part of you with the exposure, but now by looking at what has happened until now, we are restricting it to a group that is much more homogeneous and now our question can be much more targeted. Okay, given that this is how you are, what if you stop eating cookies and start eating nuts for example? I'm not going to stop eating the cookies. <laughs> you don't want to participate. Exactly. <laughs> no, you know that... You know I don't like nuts in my cookies or anything. Raisins? Okay. Raisins are fruit, basically. No, raisins don't... <laughs> no, no. Cookies are cookies, period. Here we have another selection into our study. <laughs> Matt refuses to be part of our trial on cookies with nuts involved. <laughs> I do. I do. Okay, so speaking of trials, so it seems to me that another advance in our conceptualization of observational epi is the introduction of the target trial framework, which I think has really in a number of ways helped us clarify our thinking on the types of questions that we're asking and then how to go about asking them with observational data. Is it your sense that these time-varying exposures get included in that target trial framework? And if so, does the target trial framework help us avoid some of these problems that we've been talking about? Yes. And interestingly, of the two problems that we were talking about related, one, the complexities around time-varying confounding, and the other, what is your question? I think that the target trial framework helps helps mostly with what is your question, defining time zero, defining the beginning of exposure, defining the beginning of follow-up. Yeah. And then it goes to, now, if you have to adjust for time-varying confounder, like, and by the way, you will have to adjust for time-varying confounding in a randomized trial as well, when you have baseline randomization. If you have to do it, and then they refer to chapter 25, use these methods. And if you have collected the information, use this. But I don't think the target trial changes that part. It changes the other aspect we have been discussing over. 
forcing us to clearly defining what is our intervention treatment strategy and not getting into trouble by introducing selection biases and immortal time bias that we don't have to start with and we sometimes introduce by the way we design things. Yeah, we spoke to someone recently who said that they felt that the target trial framework was so important for all of these different reasons. And I completely agree that it helps with all these things. But from my way of thinking, the most important thing that I think it does is just help us ask a very clear question and then define a clear zero time. It does so many other things, but that to me is the most valuable in my experience. I agree, mine too. And so I'm curious then in your work, have you come across any examples where these time varying confounding time varying exposure issues have made a real difference in the effects that you're estimating where so say if you were to ignore the time varying nature, you would get a very different answer? Yes, in pharmacopoeia we have that all the time. In my own work in pregnancy, because we have a shorter follow-up, we don't get, we don't have the time to have many time-varying problems. But in pharmacopoeia, of course, all the time, because we have this treatment confounding feedback continuously when we treat. We put the example of HIV CD4 counts, but say in diabetes, when we look at treatment, because there is hyperglycemia, high glucose in the blood, then we treat with something. We measure the blood levels of the glucose levels, the glycemic index, and then we adapt the treatment accordingly and we measure again glycemic control and so forth. So we can go easily into those confounder treatment feedbacks in pharmacopoeia as well. And so have you seen when you change the analysis to account for these approaches, the associations you're estimating really do change? Good question, because <laughs> to the point of, do you have the data to do that? Yeah. Uh-huh. So when we use databases in pharmacopoeia, we rarely have good data on hemoglobin A1C, which is it's a way we measure glycemic control. So when you don't have it, what do you do? So interesting, and again, I think probably we might be going to the side, but one lesson that I learned recently about this is that sometimes trying to use a large population with very broad inclusion-exclusion criteria in this type of pharmacopoeia analysis has a lot of confounding to start with, including time-varying confounding, including in the example of diabetes, hemoglobin A1C levels. And if we try to use our data to adjust for that, for data, we do not do a good job. With some subgroups that we had, adjusting for all the other information we had, still we had imbalances. So we learned that when we restrict the population to the ones that eat cookies, to, to a more specific homogeneous population that to start with were in one specific treatment, say, that were on metformin. And now we evaluate treatment interventions that in clinical, in real clinical practice, have actually meaning that the patients are really exchangeable, that we will we could really treat the patients with one thing or the other, yeah. then we can do it. Then we we can control confounding, we, we can have exchangeability of our groups. So we had to fight the confounding actually with restrictions. Um, we uh, were not able to control it with fancy and models because we didn't have the information to do it. So it seems to me that that is one of the biggest problems and you, you've just sort of hit on it, which is if I think about the 20 plus years since I was trained, the methods have really advanced and we've gotten very good at understanding and teaching the 
these approaches, at least to doctor level students, maybe to master students as well. But we don't spend nearly as much time educating people on the data that they would actually need to be able to collect this and, for sure. and how to plan for that and go out and collect that kind of data. And I'm curious, you, know, you mentioned that one example. I mean, is that your experience in general that we typically don't spend enough time thinking about the data collection aspect of it? Or maybe it's that we're using data that already exists and we just don't have the option. But has that been your experience? Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you are bringing uh, this question because I do believe that we are relaxing a lot about that part in our training that I think now students think that the only that is possible are those that are using data that is already available to them, either from databases like healthcare databases or from existing cohorts. And I think there is a lot of value, of course, of getting to know what the data means and the limitations of the data. And if you do not have the quality of the data, the granularity, the time-dependent confounders, then you cannot just go and apply fancy methods and expect that that's going to fix it. Like if you don't have good quality time-dependent exposures and confounders that you need, there is no magic method that will compensate for that. So not even Jamie Robbins can save us if we don't have the data. That's one of the worst things I feel like I sometimes have to say to students or or as a reviewer is that you simply do not have the data to answer the question that you think you are answering or want to be answering. And it's the worst as a reviewer, a peer reviewer from a paper, you know, they've worked really hard to get it to this point. And, you know, it's just, it's a terrible feeling to have to say that to someone. It's easier, I think, when you're helping a student develop their project and helping them think through these considerations at the front end before you get to that point. But it's you can't always answer the questions you want with the data you have in it. That's, I think, again, one of the most important contributions, as we've said, from the, the target trial framework. Right. I agree. And I, and I know it can be heartbreaking like, to get to a point where you have to recognize, yeah. I cannot do a valid study on this. So, And sometimes you already invested a lot of time. So, But I agree with you. Like, If we cannot answer the question in a valid way, just let's just not do it. Which actually takes me to a totally unrelated point. Are we allowed to change our questions in a epidemiology once we realize the data we have, or do we have to stick by our protocol if we you know, send our protocol to clinicaltrial.org and so forth? So we learn what we can do and what we cannot sometimes as we go. So I think that brings this other interesting discussion in the field of like, then can we change our protocol? Is that cherry picking? Like with the diabetes example that I, I was giving to you, if, if I were to start having inclusion and exclusion criteria of people with diabetes and then realize there's like, I cannot control for confounding enough. Okay, let me focus on those with diabetes that are on metformin to start with. Okay, I have to change my question. Now my question is among those that eat cookies, you know, <laughs> and now recommending nuts or not. Is that wrong? I think it would be worse to publish a bias study, but I think we have to acknowledge that, that yeah. we have tried. But how do we deal with that adaptation of our protocols to the things we are encountering? I have strong feelings about this one. I, to me, absolutely, you should adapt to the better question. I think the reason why that gets so complicated is that we spend a lot of time in epidemiology publishing studies that are truly probably exploratory in nature as if they were confirmatory and causal in nature. And if we were more honest about that and about the state of where we actually are with things, we would have less concern about making those changes. And then you could do that study and then it might not be the the study that changes policy, but it leads to the set of studies that come next that confirm 
or refute what you found and we would all be better off. That's my take. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that we should be able to update it, but there could be a transparent process for updating it. You know, instead of delete and replace, it could be a, a track changes or a version two or, you know, in the, the protocol documents mm-hmm. to be transparent that I, I thought I could do this and this is the reason why it would be instructive for the field or anyone who's who's looking at those documents to understand your thought processes and why this isn't possible in the way that you thought it might be initially. But I'm on the same page as well. I worry about that approach a little bit, though, only because, I mean, like we are trained to be hypercritical. And so the minute you see somebody has changed from what they were originally said they were going to do, people, I think, get in some cases rightly skeptical, but in other cases, overly skeptical of your motivations for doing so. And we know we have lots of cases where people do actually change, you know, they change the question because they didn't find a statistically significant result. And so they changed it a little bit so they could get one. And we don't want to encourage that. But in your case, what you're describing, Haley, I think is the right thing to do. And yet I worry it's going to be used against those who do it. I think it's, what's that expression? Six one way, half a dozen the other or whatever it's called. Six of one, half a dozen of the other. Yeah, say that, that's what I meant to say. You know, I, I think you're trading criticism potentially upfront for criticism from a, a peer reviewer at the end when you are making conclusions that are, are not supported by the results that you've presented. And yeah. so I, I think it would require some culture shift in our field, recognizing that it's okay to, to change things as you go through the processes for these reasons. If your reason is I wanted to get P less than 0.05, I wouldn't do that. But if the reason is the confounding control was poor and we couldn't obtain an unbiased estimate, then I think that's a legitimate answer. So I I guess it depends on what your rationale is for making that change. Sure. All right. Well, that has been a really interesting conversation. I think we do need to leave it there because we are out of time. But Sonia, this has been really enlightening. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And for those of you who are not members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, I want to encourage you to consider becoming a member. Membership gets you discounted fee for the annual meeting, which is coming up in June next year in Austin. It also gets you access to the SER library, where you can find some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. We also want to plug our sister podcast from the American Journal of Epidemiology, Casual Inference. If you like this podcast, we think you're going to like that one as well. And as a reminder, the views expressed on this podcast are those of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. We really appreciate you listening and look out for our next episode. Thanks to you both. Bye. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Heidi. All right.